Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Hillel Cohen, who teaches at the Hebrew University, here to talk about his new book, Year Zero of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1929, published in 2015 by Brandeis University Press. Hillel, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much. Well, glad, we're glad to have you. So, Hillel, can you set the stage for us? What's going on in Palestine in 1928 when your story sort of opens? Uh, for both Jews and Arabs. And where are the British in all this? Yeah, as everybody well knows, in 1928, the British rule the country, and there is a Jewish minority in Palestine, Eretz Israel, a Jewish minority of about between 15 and 20 percent of the population. And Jews are, uh, the number of Jews in uh, Eretz Israel is increasing gradually since, uh, actually since the beginning of Zionism in 1882 or even previously. You know, from mid-19th century, there is a gradual increase in in Jewish presence in Palestine. More and more Jews come to Palestine, and especially so after the beginning of the lovers of Zion, in 1881, and then after, you know, the Zionist Congress of uh, Herzl in 1897, there is another wave of uh, Aliyah, we have the first Aliyah, then the second Aliyah, and then the First World War. And in 1917, the British army occupied Palestine and Israel. Uh, they finished the occupation of Israel in 1918. And then we have a military government, British military government for a while, and then the British mandate with the high commissioner, a Jewish, Herbert Samuel, the first high commissioner in Palestine. So this is a setting, I would say, of the years prior to the event that we are talking about. And in 1928, it is quite clear for the Arabs of Palestine that the Zionist movement is a serious one, and it is backed by the British. So here we are. And the, 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 the place where the event started not surprisingly, is uh, Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, not surprisingly, it's around the Temple Mount or al haram sharif or the Wailing Wall. Right. So I want to ask you, in what ways was the Jewish community, or maybe better to say communities, fractured before 1929? Look, in, in, in before Zionism, there were different Jewish communities in Palestine. I mean, before the, the, the Zionist movement started its activity, there were in Palestine uh, Sephardi communities. There were in Palestine Mughrabi communities, meaning Jews who came from Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia. And there were what we call the old Yishuv of the Ashkenazis, which are the, the, the students of Hagra, Agaon Rabbi Eliyahu Mivilna, and the students of Hatan Sofer, 
and different Hasidic groups. For example, Chabad, Lubavitch in Hebron, other Hasidic groups in Tzfat, in Tiberias, in Jerusalem. So there were many small Jewish, mainly religious, but not only religious communities scattered in many, not many areas, mainly in four cities in Palestine, Eretz Israel, which we call the, the four holy cities, Jerusalem, Hebron, Tzfat, and Tiberias. And also since 1882, there are gradually more and more Moshavot and then also Kibbutzim, which are different kinds, as you know, of Zionist Jewish settlements. The book's title is very direct, um, Year Zero of the Arab-Israeli Conflict. Uh, you know, you say this is not necessarily when the conflict began, but it was when it was forever changed. Uh, who are you sort of arguing against? What What is the traditional view of when the conflict began? Well, in, in, uh, if, if we speak today in uh, 2016, you know, some people in Israel and also in other places uh, tend to say that, you know, the occupation of 67, this is a even if it's not the beginning of the conflict, this is a main issue of the conflict. And some people say, no, it's 1948, the establishment of the state of Israel and the Palestinian Nakba, the catastrophe where, you know, all Palestinian refugees were forced to leave and were not allowed to return to their homes. But if we want to understand better the situation now and also the situation in 1948, because 1948 did not started from nothing, so we have to go a bit back in history and to ask ourselves what happened before. In 1929, of course, it's not the first uh, bloody event between Jews and Arabs or the first Arab attack on Jews. There were attacks on Jews in 1920, 1921, and even during the Ottoman period in late 19th century. Not very frequent, but there were some local, you know, squirrels or skirmishes or whatever. But 1929 was much more, and we speak about the scale of the event, it was much more wide in the sense that it was in many parts of the country. This is one. It lasted for more or less two weeks, depends where. And the number of casualties was relatively high. I mean, the highest uh, uh, at, during the mandate period, the highest number of Jewish victims. If we speak about Arab victims, it's different because there was the Arab revolt of, of, of uh, 36. But if we take Jewish victims, which is usually what is more important for Jews, the number of Jews who were killed in Hebron is a massacre in Hebron was 67, which is, you know, enormous number of people to be, to be massacred in one event. It, it didn't happen even in the war of 48. The, the, I mean, the next time was in the War of 48, that such numbers of casualties in the Jewish side. Right. So the incident at the heart of the book is uh, in the last week of August 1929, there's a nationwide um, violence that breaks mm -hmm. out. So how does starting sort of the story of Israel and Palestine in 1929 sort of change the way we think about 1948 and change the way we think about today? Actually, in order to understand the events of 1929, we have to go back to the to the the essence of Zionism to ask ourselves questions about Zionism. And I say to ask questions because I do not try to give answers in my book, but I try to to tell a story, to portray uh, certain events as crucial to 
mainly what I try to do is to try to understand and to tell what people felt and what their emotions were and what drove them to do certain things. For example, to kill Jews in different places. And uh, in order to understand that, we have to understand Zionism and we have to understand the relationship between Zionism and the, the, the British, the imperial power. And we have to understand the religious attachment of Jews to the holy city. And we have to understand the place of Jerusalem in Islam. And we have to understand what is land and territory for, for the Arabs of Palestine. And we have to understand what were the relations between Jews and Arabs before Zionism. And we have also to differentiate between myth and reality. So this is what my book is about. You know, the book is very self-aware, um, if I can use that phrase, as a work of history. It's not only about the events themselves, but about, his, about how history gets written, sort of a philosophy of history. Um, is the writing of history in Israel-Palestine particularly political? Uh, in the introduction, you spent some time talking about how historians are forced to decide what, and not, what to include and what not to include. Um, for you, is this a strategic decision, an ideological one, or just a practical one? No, what we what we usually say, see in in this field of of, of uh, writing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that usually, of course, not only usually people write in order to prove their point. So if they are Zionists, they want to prove that Zionism is just. If they are pro-Palestinian, they try to prove that Palestinian nationalism is right. And and. In order to do that, they, as everybody does, but in, in our case, I think it's more evident, they use historical events or facts in a very selective way. Again, I don't say that everybody does this, but what I try to do is to take what was or had been already written on 1929, and in addition to analyze the events of 1929 from primary sources, also to describe and analyze what was written about it in order to see how the events were perceived and how history is written, history of the conflict is written. And I would say that uh, it is true that a lot of what is written about the conflict is politically driven, but also what I did is the same. I, I, I do not exclude myself from this idea, I would say, because if someone goes for weeks or months or years to archives and to field research and uh, to study and to write one draft and second draft, it's of course also because he believes in something and he wants to, 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 to deliver and to, to give his readership something new that has to do with his own beliefs. But my own belief is that we have to understand deeply both sides of the conflict in order to live in our country. So this book is, is, is the, I wrote it for Israelis and Palestinians, actually. Of course, everybody else can read it, but the idea is that I really wanted Jews to understand Arabs, and I really want Arabs to understand Zionism and the behavior of the Zionists. 
So this was my aim. So it's also a kind of political aim, of course. And I know that many people are not, uh, do not like this idea because I'm part of the Jewish tribe, of course. Of, I'm Kohen, so a special tribe. And I'm part of this tribe. And why I do not only emphasize our, you know, just cause? Why do I also point at wrongs that we, we did? Or why do I try to understand too much murderers? Why should one understand murderers? But I think that this is very, very necessary, especially today in Jerusalem. Because, of course, I, 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 I wrote a book. It, it is about 1929, but it is also about today. I live in Jerusalem. My kids live in Jerusalem. My family live in Jerusalem. And we have quite frequently the same tension here as was in 1929. And again, many times it's around the Temple Mount or around the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And I think that part of it is because both sides do not try to understand the other side, but, but rather to prove that they are right. And my point is, okay, believe that you are right. This is not wrong that anyone believes in his rights, but also open your heart, open your mind to understand the other. So I don't know. It might be too naive or whatever, but this, this was my 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 point. Right. In, how would you counsel someone to be able to understand that two people can see the same events completely opposite? Uh, you know, for one group uh, it's terrorism, and for the other group it's a national uprising. How how do you help people understand to be able to see both both of those things at the same time? Of course, this is not an easy task, but what I try to do is to take them into the consciousness of the other. I do the same more or less, or I try to do the same more or less with my students at the, at the Hebrew U. I tell them now for a couple of minutes, forget that you are Jewish Israelis. I mean, 90% of them are Jewish Israelis, about 10% are Palestinian Arabs. So in other cases, I tell it to my Palestinian Arab students. But I tell my Jewish students, for a moment, forget that you are what you are and try to think or imagine that you are, for example, a refugee, 20 years old, that was born in a refugee camp near Tulkarem, Nur Shams refugee camp, for example. And now try to understand what you were taught as a kid. What are the values that you were raised in their life? What the history that you were told. And now, from this perspective, try to understand what are the reasons that this person now come to, for example, to Tel Aviv or to Jerusalem and try to stab a policeman. So you have for a while to, to forget who you are, to forget your identity. In the long run, it would strengthen your identity. But in order to do that, you have to acquire the ability to to hold it for a, a, a moment, not to forget about it and to try to be someone else. So it's a kind of invitation. Some people want to do it. Some people do not want to do it. And I can understand both. 
But I think that it is a very important experiment for everybody. Before we get into the chapters, I just want to ask, why were the British unable to calm the tensions on both sides? This is a very good question. And there is a question, even to what degree they were interested in the tension between Jews and Arabs, in the sense that for them to rule, you know, the, the, the ancient rule of divide and rule. So some people say that they wanted that there will be tension between Jews and Arabs. I'm, I'm not sure, and I must admit that, that I'm not an expert for, for British affairs. I, I, I started with studying Palestinian society, then I moved to start studying Zionist and Israeli society. The British side, for me, is a kind of, you know, I wouldn't say enigma, but it's less clear for me. Mm-hmm. So, so the book is not chronological. It's... um. It sort of jumps around, but it is largely geographical. The first chapter deals with Tel Aviv and Jaffa. Um, this is not where the riots began, but it is sort of a largely forgotten story. Um, it, you know, these were coastal centers, important ones, but certainly not the center of the action. Why start with that chapter? The, the, the main reason is the, that the story that, that uh, attracted me to write about 1929, this story happened in Jaffa. And the story is, and I, I, I uh, of course, I write about it quite k- k- pages in, in the book, is a story that I read in an Arab book that uh, about a Jewish policeman who entered the uh, home of an uh, Arab family in Jaffa and killed all the members of the family. And this, this policeman, he was a member of the Haganah, and the Haganah sent him to serve as a policeman in the British police. So when I first read this story in the book of Mustafa Dabar, which is a prominent uh, Palestinian uh, historian uh, he, who, who lived in mandatory Palestine and became refugee. But when I first read this story, I said, how come that this story is true? I mean, how come that I didn't hear about it, if it's, if, if it's true? So I photocopied this page and I put it uh, on my desk and I forgot about it. And a couple of months later, I was in the Haganah archive. It's part of the IDF archive. And I, by accident, I would say, I found a, a document about the same event in which uh, a member of the Haganah, the, the Jewish underground forces, uh, tells about the same incident and how he was involved in bribing the British judge who sentenced this guy to death. So when I read the Jewish source, I realized that it's probably a true story. And then I understood something about myself, that I doubted the story because it came from an Arab source. So I tried to, I started to think about sources, about reliability, about bias of historians. And because this was a story that led me to, the, to writing about 1929, I decided to, to, to start with, with Jaffa. So in Jaffa, I do not start from this event. I start from the riots of 1921, in which the, the Jewish author 
Brenner was assassinated or killed by 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 Arab mob. Right. The next chapter uh, looks at Jerusalem. I want to ask you how important are religious leaders? Um, you write about Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook uh, and the Mufti uh, Hajamin al Husseini. Um, what can you say about that? I think, and I think more so after after writing this book that, and also being in Jerusalem for fifty years, I was born here. That that religious sentiments are the core of both Zionism and Palestinian national movement. I mean, Judaism, of course, for, for Zionist movement. And Judaism, in, in, in many senses, it can be, you know, for religious Zionists, it can be the uh, observant Jews is in one way, and for what we call secular Jews, it is in another way. But still, Judaism, the Bible, the holy places, are the core, the heart, of Zionism. So in this sense, of course, religion is very important. And religious leaders, they can have an important role in, 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 in bloody events as well as in peacemaking. Sometimes they try to use the powers that they have. Sometimes they do not, but they have the potential. Right. Um I want to ask you about uh, Hebron, which is the focus of chapter three. Um, there's an interesting sort of discussion about language and labeling. Um, you know, we say the Hebron massacre. What What is a massacre? Uh, you, you ask us to think about. And, and do we ask the right questions after massacres? Yes. In, in, in the case of Hebron, I think uh, in Hebron, it was a massacre according to all definitions that I know. Because the the Jews in Hebron were unarmed. They didn't attack. There was no danger to the life of the Arabs of Hebron. There were kids, not many. Some kids were saved by the Arabs, even by murderers. But also some kids were, were murdered. So in this case, of course, this is, a, this is a play massacre. In other cases, we have to ask what kind of, uh, of threat the people who were killed were vis-à-vis uh, -vis the attackers. So this question we have, for example, in Hebron, and we ha uh, not in Hebron, in Jerusalem, in Jaffa, in other places, but, but not in Hebron. Right, and, and, and do we ask the right questions after? It, seem, it seems like sometimes we get sort of caught up, um, you know, asking uh, uh, the wrong types of questions. I, I, I think that in... Dealing with massacre is very difficult, and, and massacres are sometimes used and abused by by in the public discourse. Because, of course, massacres it's a, it's a terrible event that nobody can justify. On the other hand, people massacre other people, so there are some people who justify that. And then the question is. When is it justified or by, by some people? And here I, I, I must tell that I, I, while I was writing the book, there was a, another Israeli attack on Gaza in which thousands of Palestinian kids were killed by the Israeli Air Force. And for me, it, it was terrible. 
And I saw a poll in Israeli newspapers that I think it was 98% of Israeli population support these attacks. And I realized that what is massacre for one side is not a massacre for the other side. Because nobody, the Israelis wouldn't say that we massacred kids in, in, in Gaza. And Palestinians do not say that they massacred Jews in Hebron. They find, find ways to tell it differently. And this also, it was a very important lesson for me, you know, that, uh, that all this kind of, of moral judgment, usually we find ways to justify our side and to blame the other side. And again, I, I personally, I, I, I don't like it, but my job, so to speak, is to try to to, to understand it and to explain that. And the explanation is very, very easy. I mean, that of course, Jew, as a Jew, when Jews are killed, it's, it's much more painful. It's true also for me that, I, uh, for example, I was against the Israeli operations, uh, that, that Israeli operation in Gaza, but still I can say that when Jewish kids are killed, it's much more painful for me. So I can understand people that they almost do not care when Arab kids are killed, and they find ways to say why it was justified. But then what I do is the additional step is to see and also to show that the same process we can find among Palestinians. I mean that they care about their kids, but they do not care about our kids. And we really must understand that if we want to try to change something here. I want to look at the fourth chapter, um, which is about Moza uh, on the western part of Jerusalem. Um, can you tell us uh, just briefly about the Maklef family? Um, and this is one of the instances where we actually know about what happened afterwards in the trials. Uh, maybe you can tell us briefly about that. Yes, yeah, Monza is a small colony that was established in, in, in the late 19th century. And they, they bought their land from the village of Colonia. And during the attacks of 1929, the Jews of Colonia were attacked by the neighbors, more or less the same people who sold them the land. So here we are, we have a couple of questions. The same we had also in Hebron, that in couple of cases, the attackers knew very well the people that they attacked. They, sometimes they, were, uh, they visited them. They, they participated in, in their weddings and so on and so forth. And they killed them. And, and the same happened in Moza. So we have to try to understand that. And again, we have to distinguish, with, of course, between under, to understand and justify. I'm not speaking about justifications. And I think what we can learn from Moza, but also from some of the cases in Jerusalem, is about the awareness of the Arabs that the Jews who came to Palestine and bought land from them, they didn't come only to find refuge from pogroms in Russia, Romania, or to live in the holy city, but they also came in order to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. And to establish a Jewish state in Palestine for the Palestinian Arabs, it's, 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 it's nightmare. I mean, they lived on their land. 
they believe that they have the right to rule themselves. And then they, these Jews come, and since very early stage, they have also support of the British, and they want to, to, to establish a Jewish kingdom or a Jewish state instead of the Arab, Arab communities that were there. Now, in some cases, they, 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 they didn't really know what the intentions of the Zionists were. They were, some would say, they exaggerated about the threat, the Zionist threat, that the Zionists were eager or at least ready to share sovereignty with them and so on. But the basic feeling of the Arabs was that, look, you came from abroad, you asked us to sell you land, we did that, but we wanted you as neighbors, not as rulers, and you tried to become our rulers. So this is part of the story. Now, the Maclef family was one of the families of Mozart, and all the members of the family, except for two, were killed by their neighbors. And the, the two who were rescued, there are also some, and this is also interesting when we have this kind of history investigation. If they were rescued by one of the Jews in, in the house or they were rescued by the murderer himself who decided not to kill them because they are Jews. So we have this Arab narrative about the event and a Jewish description. But the kid who left the home and saved his life, Mordechai Maklef, later on joined the Haganah and he fought in the Second World War in the Jewish Brigade in Europe. And then he returned to Palestine and he was a member of the IDF in the War of 48. And he became later the chief of staff of the, of the IDF. So we have this person who lost almost all his family and then he became the, the, the chief of staff of the Israeli army. And there is question regarding how these events of 1929 influenced him and other people during the War of 48. Right, and that leads me to um, my next question, which is, you know, if we look um, at this story and then again in Chapter 6, it seems like, you know, 1929 lives on both in people's experiences, also in their memory. Um, so what is the direct impact for the sort of the next generation, you know, the, the 1948 people, um, as they as they remember and as they think about what 1929 meant. I think the the meaning of 1929 for the Jews was that the Arabs are serious in their opposition to Zionism. They are not going to accept Zionism, and they are going to fight and kill in order to prevent the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And this led to the more consolidation of the Jewish communities in Palestine at that time. Many communities who were detached from the Zionist idea realized that only with the use of arms, Jews can protect themselves against the Arabs. So there were more people who joined the Jewish armed forces or the Jewish underground they were more organization who became part of the Zionist organization. And 
the idea of the Jewish soldier and the Jewish hero and the the Jewish officer became a very important part of the way Israelis, I would say also Jews everywhere, see the state of Israel. That the hero is the soldier, not the thinker, not the intellectual, less and less the farmer or the worker. The hero is the officer in the commando and the like. And here we can see since 1948 that we have as prime ministers, as leaders, time and again we have people that served in the Israeli army as officers. And this, in Israeli eyes, makes them the right person to lead the country. Mm-hmm. Well, Hillel, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Well, I, I, I still rest. I, uh, it took so many energies from me that I, I really I have to rest more than two years. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I haven't heard that one. Thank you. Um, well, that sounds like a much-needed uh, rest, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. Hello, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Year Zero of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1929, published in 2015 by Brandeis University Press. The author is Hillel Cohen. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much, Lisa.